This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, aged just 10, Hussein Kasai saw his parents struggle to prove who they were in a new country. A decade later, he co-founded Onfido to help fight financial fraud and identity theft, but also to make it easier for real people, like his folks, to prove who they are. It was hard for them to rent in their own name and open a bank account for the first few months just because they weren't able to prove their identity or residency. And that felt very bizarre for me because I remember they were waiting pretty much on a daily basis to see if they are able to be registered on a credit bureau, like an Equifax or an Experian. And growing up, I used to think this credit bureau is the most magical institution <laughs> that uh, helps people get on with their lives. So I was pretty disappointed as I started to research it as to what I felt was a very outdated, antiquated system. Hussein Kasai, co-founder and former CEO of Onfido, welcome to the FNTech podcast. It's great to be on. Uh, well, great to see you. Uh, you, I mean, I know it, it looks kind of quite grey. I know this is just an audio podcast, but uh, but that wouldn't necessarily lead me to believe that you're in Manchester. But how are things there in the UK? It is good in many ways. We are very fortunate in that we have a vaccine program here that is quite successful. It's similar to Israel, actually. Uh, so we are both in countries that um, we are quite fortunate in that way. But as with anyone else, is this is amongst the one year point at which we went into lockdown. So I suppose everyone is looking forward to slowly being able to get back to life as normal. Yeah, and I think another thing in common is that uh, both governments were quite heavily criticised for the way they handled the uh, pandemic in the early days. But let's not get uh, let's not get too political now, at least not at the beginning. Uh, so how have you been? I know the UK is still more or less in a, in, a, in a lockdown. I know certain things are open and certain things aren't. But uh, how are you kind of keeping yourself busy these days? I've been lucky. I mean, I suppose for the tech industry, we are one of the very few industries that we are very, uh, in a, it's in our DNA to be working remotely and agile and essentially to adapt to change. So as far as it goes, as tough as it's been for pretty much everyone, we have been one of the few industries, I think, that has been fortunate in some ways uh, as, as, as far as like, coping with it. And as far as growth, which is what tech and, uh, in many ways fintech is all about, um, as almost everyone listening to the podcast would know, it's been a pretty special period for the growth of fintech, the necessity of digitization. And we had on Fido our focus around the identity components. So in, in that way, we've had such a busy year that it's been hard to think about anything else. Right. And you mentioned on Fido, of course, you are the former CEO and a co-founder of the company. Uh, perhaps you can tell us a bit more in detail about uh, what the company does, what its mission is, and how it's been doing both before, during, and perhaps uh, now as we hopefully emerge from the coronavirus pandemic. Sure. So we started uh, just over 10 years ago, myself and two co-founders, and we essentially could see that businesses are moving online, and yet it is becoming increasingly difficult for these online businesses to verify that the people that they are registering remotely are who they claim to be. So our approach is offering, uh, we, we have over 1,500 businesses as clients, the opportunity to install our, our services on, and it's called the software development kits, whether it's on their smartphone apps or their web browsers, so that when their customers are signing up, they're asked to take a photo of their government ID, 
and a short selfie video, and then behind the scenes, we're using machine learning to analyze as to whether that government ID seems genuine, and then we match it to the person's face. So it's essentially replicating what used to happen face-to-face -face as you go inside a bank branch and you show paper-based documentation, for instance. But now it's all online. And the timing of it was fortunate in that that's when the fintech industry started to grow and was needed. And naturally, pretty much all of uh, fintech has remote digital onboarding, and we've been very lucky to power the majority of the industry. So when it comes to your question around pre- and post-pandemic, the only difference is, is that in many ways, fintech is, is a front runner on digitizing and using and then focusing on the customer experience. And now that has been extended to a whole host of other industries. So that increasingly, as you want to enter, whether it's a gym or a building or a hotel, the preference over time will be that you'll be able to verify your own identity. And as you're showing up, you just show a QR code based system or something similar to be able to access these services. So as well as the growth in fintech, many non-fintech industries have kind of grown and digitized. And it's naturally not unique to, to identity or, or what we do. Communications, right? So many more people are using Zoom and similar services. Online payments. All these infrastructure-based companies have had uh, their relevance has become a lot more important uh, as we've entered this increasingly remote working world. Right. And it would seem that, you know, your, your company was almost designed to uh, you know, be there with the kind of picks and shovels, if you like, for this kind of digitization gold rush during the pandemic, when you know people, for health reasons, uh, principally, and because of lockdowns, just simply cannot do the face-to-face -face verification of, of people's identities. Uh, can you quantify kind of the uptick in growth and perhaps how much further ahead in your growth story you are now as a result of the pandemic, and whether you think that's likely to continue? I can uh, so insofar as before and after, a lot of the early fintech industry was convenience based, like the neo banks, right? It's just more convenient. It's more uh, natural to, especially the smartphone generation. It doesn't make sense to go physically in a branch when you can do it all online on these really well designed apps. So it's, it's predominantly convenience, but the pandemic shifted that to a need. Like the branches are closed, you have no choice. So that convenience to necessity step naturally helped us and especially our engagements with the mainstream institutions. So in the UK, four of the, four of the five mainstream banks or the largest uh, banks use us. It's two out of five in the US, increasing numbers across continental Europe. And they have essentially seen that although that innovation arms and we're looking to digitize and in many ways become more like these neobanks, they've seen that that's now their only choice in the long term. So they've accelerated their move, again, not just with us, but the whole sort of wave of new technologies that fintech companies are utilizing and when it comes to that the specific growth so there are, we, we you know generally have been doubling year on year as far as size goes we ended last year above what we had set as our targets um, as ambitious as they were so those are the main things that we've talked about and how does that actually work I'm, i don't want to get too deep into the weeds in terms of you know artificial intelligence and, and everything else that, that you're using but i mean in the sense that if I've got an ID that's forged and the picture on there matches my face, obviously your systems are going to detect that the ID is forged, even if the face you know, matches that. So I'm just wondering how, what kind of process your, um, your technology goes through in order to determine whether someone is bona fide or not. I, I'm thinking especially of one particular story, a, a founder of a fintech uh, which had operations in the Philippines was uh, telling me that you know, people were actually using corpses uh, to do the, uh, you know, face recognition. And we're kind of trying to fool systems by actually using dead people 
to do that. Uh, would that get past you? And, and how does your system actually work? There's no pun intended, but we have what we call a liveness check right. <laughs> to make sure the person uh, is, a, is alive. and is So that is predominantly geared towards stopping someone holding up a photograph, a static photograph. So the liveness check, uh, the, the person behind the sort of smartphone screen or their web browser is asked to re read out three randomly generated numbers, so like four, five, eight, for instance, and to do some sort of randomized task, such as move your head to the left or the right and things of that nature. And that is how we are able to sort of verify that, that they're genuine. Almost like, uh, a live, to, almost like a live version capture kind of thing. Precisely, precisely. Uh, and there are different configuration options for the different examples, case studies, stages of the workflow and organization. Uh, you know, you can imagine if you're registering with a bank, you may need to do a liveness check. But if you just want to authorize a payment that's above $100, just a selfie check, a, sti a still photo might be sufficient. You know, as, that's like the ongoing authentication piece. The other point you had around the government ID, if that's doctored or fakes, there are roughly 195 countries and there are typically three forms of ID in each. There's a passport, driving license, and often a government ID. And every couple of years is a new version. So soon you end up with thousands of different varieties of different ID types. Now, traditionally, if you went inside a bank branch and you just showed uh, the bank clerk a, your ID, they'd typically like, be able to just tick a box but often they wouldn't be able to tell if it's, if it's fake or not. The benefit of a machine learning model is that every time we see an ID, our models learn what normal or, or okay looks like. And as soon as there's a standard deviation from that, there's an anomaly or, or, or it's stained, or in, in fact, it is fraudulent, we flag a system because this is now seems like an anomaly. And then that pushes that ID to our fraud experts. But then there's a human uh, reviewing to see, does this, is this an anomaly because it was stained because it was in the washing machine? Or is this, in fact, a fraudster from a fraud ring? And we've seen this in the past, and so on and so forth. Um, that's typically how not just the clients benefit from us stopping fraud, but our models get better. And in fact, we do miss fakes at times. We're kind of like an antivirus software. And we've always, this is one of the unique things that we did to the industry. Well, when we came out, we said, guys, uh, we will miss fakes. <laughs> at the time, this is sort of seven, eight years ago, um, the, the two competitors that we had uh, often would claim that they catch everything, uh, catch every fake. And we said, well, no, that's not possible and we, it's absolutely not the case. However, we will commit and promise that we are improving faster than anyone else. So like, if we, if we miss a fake, you will inform us a month later. The beauty of what we do is then we learn from that mistake and the models learn and then we prevent it for not just you as a client, but every other client. And that's how it's sort of, it, we were slower to start, um, but then about four years ago, we were very clearly able to demonstrate scientifically that our, the power of detecting fraud is much stronger uh, when you use our service and products. And how did you actually come to co-found Onfido? I think uh, you, were, you were at Oxford University at the time. Uh, how Correct. did you actually come to think, oh, this is a big problem, we should do this. And obviously that's all great to have good ideas, but you, know, you need to be able to execute them as well. So how did you come up with the idea and how did you, being just a student at the time, uh, managed to execute it as well. So it, on, the company was incorporated in, in 2020, so uh, sorry, 2010, so it's pretty much exactly just over 10 years ago. But the idea and the thinking started when 20 years ago, when I when I turned 10. And so my you thought about moved, you thought about like an AI powered not quite like ID I wish, recognition. Uh, uh, I wish uh, I, I what I meant was I recognized the problem, and that was when my parents 
moved from Iran to the UK and I was 10 years old, I just remember that too, uh, it was hard for them to rent in their own name and open a bank account for the first few months just because they weren't able to prove their identity or residency. And that felt very bizarre for me because I remember they were waiting pretty much on a daily basis to see if they are able to be registered on a credit bureau, like an Equifax or an Experian. And growing up, I used to think this credit bureau is the most magical institution <laughs> that uh, helps people get on with their lives. So I was pretty disappointed as I started to research it as to what I felt was a very outdated, antiquated system. It's a log of everyone's date of birth, name and address, uh, which essentially excludes half the world's adult population who are under banks and unbanked or have just moved countries or essentially just students coming into the country or, or whatever the situation may be. And for everyone else like you and I who are, who are registered in these credit bureaus, that data is pretty much on the dark web, pretty much all of it. So a fraudster can just pay $5 and copy and steal that anyway. So all this exclusion and, and, and these barriers with almost no security added. So I was convinced that this is a problem. Like there surely must be an easier way for that bank to know that my parents are who they say they are and are not sort of impersonating or committing identity fraud. So that, that problem was in, in my mind for the whole period. And then during university, as I became sort of uh, uh, with my co-founders and, and friends at university, um, our technical co-founder, his thesis was around machine learning and how he, his task was to identify or develop a model to identify photos of um, uh, animals in the jungle, just pattern recognition. And I could very quickly see that seeing if an idea is fake or not, the image recognition is just a natural fit for machine learning. And that's essentially where so maybe I came with a problem, although they themselves had experiences with identity. Almost everyone has an identity story, right? Someone has been a victim of identity theft. Someone has just moved to a new country for a job and had struggled to open a bank account and so on and so forth. Um, so that was a problem. And then we were very fortunate that he kind of had a solution for our first version. And that's how it started. Oh, I love the way, you know, we often talk to founders and it's like, well, they decided that this was a problem. You know, it was hard to as a business to keep on top of your foreign exchange or something, or it was hard to, you know, transact uh, naturally with different currencies or something. And that's, but these are all kind of adult problems in the sense that yours stems from when you were 10 years old. And yet you kept that thought with you all of those years until you could actually act on it. I think, you know, it must've gone through a number of uh, evolutions in your mind as well uh, along the way. I'm just wondering, is Onfido today uh, what it set out to be at the beginning? How has it kind of taken on a life of its own and, and evolved? Is it what it was set out to be? So in many ways, although this wasn't like formally captured uh, by a 10-year-old, maybe it should have been, but uh, it was more a case of the, 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 the notion was, basically the test was, if you want to set up a bank account, it should take minutes, not months, right? Or, or even for those who are registered on a credit bureau, it often takes five days on average to set up a bank with a mainstream institution. And now we're, we're there, right? Um, you and I can set up an online bank within three or four minutes usually, um, which is, in many ways, the that kind of that ease of access was there, but that was that that's essentially just phase one. It's then you have phase two, which is every time you want to go to, back to that bank, calling a call center, or if you're abroad on holiday in Spain, you know your card getting rejected and all that sort of hassle. It shouldn't be that hard. We went to the moon over 50 years ago. Why can I not prove to this computer that it is me? Sometimes, or why do I have to reset my password all the time? So this seamless access. Um, the main problem was at the point of registration, and now we're increasingly doing it on an ongoing authentication basis. The hope in the long term is the user is the owner and they're able to control their own legal identity. 
and they're very much able to essentially provision access to all organizations and institutions in a privacy-centric way, whether I go through a train station or anywhere else. Because it's beyond the convenience points now, there's a health consideration, as you mentioned, and naturally a security one. So this is all in many ways coming together. So, so although we're lucky in many ways, we're kind of only just getting started. And I guess there must be so many other applications beyond finance and and financial technology. I mean, I'm just thinking uh, without going into too much detail, you know, dating apps, for example, could be another way to, you know, make sure that someone is who they say they are or even, you know, social media um, you know, accounts to, and, you know, would, would perhaps quickly eradicate the, uh, the problem of uh, troublesome bots, uh, you know, spreading misinformation and the like as well. Is that, is that something you're looking at maybe? Very much. So only two, well, I can't say only, basically two thirds of our activity is related to finance. A third is not. A lot is, is travel, car rental, and things of that nature. Quite a bit is healthcare. So if you're using, say, a Bab- Babylon Health in the UK, um, it may seem as though, you know, if you're just talking to a doctor, like, what's the issue? Why do you need identity? Well, naturally, if that uh, organization needs access to your health records from that central health authority, they need to be sure that you are you and you're not claiming to be someone else. So identity plays into uh, quite a bit of these things in different ways. More recently, it's, it's exams. Students are sitting at home doing exams. It's tempting if you have a uh, intelligent cousin or brother or, or sister or someone to ask them to come and help you out. Whereas, you know, that that's kind of that will be prevented if, if these organizations are doing identity checks and uh, things of that nature too. Right. Well, and of course, those who were of the uh, eagle-eyed or eagle-eared uh, listeners would have noticed that I described you as the former CEO of Onfido, as well as being co-founder. Uh, you recently stepped down. What was the reasons behind that? So as it reached my 10-year mark, um, I, we essentially brought in this uh, new experienced CEO, Mike, who has taken companies uh, to IPO in the past and essentially is experienced at that scale and level of growth. It's been more than a year since I've been looking for a three-month break in some ways, and it became apparent that that's just not possible unless there's a, a, a CEO. So this is a little bit of a best of both worlds where I'm able to do the things that I enjoy, and obviously I'm still engaging and advisor to the company, while Mike is more able to basically run the company as a, as a CEO. I guess we only all have the luxury of being Jack Dorsey and kind of, you know, uh, setting up shop on a, on a South Pacific island or something uh, for the year. But, but were you just kind of, uh, I guess you said you needed a, a three-month break or, or a break of some sort. You were just kind of knackered, burned out, and, or was it more ulcer at the same time, wanting to spend time, you know, doing other things? It was. So it, it was more than a year since I'd been, been planning for, to have a break. Um, it just, I gave myself this hard deadline of the 10-year mark. So when I reached that 10-year mark, essentially, uh, I was able to be there. Because naturally, it, it's, you know, 500-person organization. It's not just the running of it. it, it it's the making sure we deliver on the mission of solving the identity problem. And that's um, all that we've achieved. And this is essentially still is my first job. Um, I have always felt that I am, me and my co-founders are the very best to be able to bring it to where it is today. But I'm also um, very aware of the fact that where, where it needs to go from here on in really needs a different set of experience, skill sets. And because I'm far more interested in us delivering on our mission than me having a specific title, that is what I wanted. And we're kind of, we're in a position, we're, we're clearly the market leader. We have all the key clients that we wanted. And the product is essentially improving continuously because of the machine learning nature. Is that marginal Support improvements I can offer is less 
uh, and there are these other projects that I'm um, going to soon be going on to. So that's why it felt like it was the right time. Okay, I want to come on to some of those projects perhaps uh, in just a short while, but I'm just wondering just finally on this matter, I mean, it must be a very hard decision. You know, this was your baby. I mean, you've been thinking about it since you were 10. You'd been running it for 10 years uh, as well. And, you know, it's a really major decision, really impactful on your life. I'm just wondering how hard it was as a founder, as a co-founder of Onfido, of Onfido to kind of make that decision finally and, 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 and step, step aside. It, it wasn't purely my own decision. As you go through different funding rounds, you get more investors and naturally you have a, it's a board decision more, more than anything else. But beyond that, it, it wasn't necessarily difficult in, in that if you go through a university and you really enjoy the experience, you know, you really absolutely want to go on uh, to the next thing. You've learned all that you have and you've contributed all that you can. What I enjoyed uh, and I'm still sort of actively doing right now is on the direction, on the advisory, on essentially things like this. I've got more time to be doing podcasts like this and so on. And then getting onto the nitty gritty of whether it's speaking with banks, uh, advisors, consulting firms, uh, making plans for the future of the company in that sense. Um, that is something that basically um, I don't have that much experience with. And in some ways, you know, once you've been going for 10 years and you know, given all the founders that you speak with, it is a different kind of role. Uh, I know there's this romanticized notion of like this hero based CEO that does everything. That's definitely not the case. This is absolutely a team effort. But what I'm trying to say is it's basically hard to switch off when there's always something to be resolved and so on. So I felt that um, I wasn't able to give it my all for us to get to the next phase. Uh, and that's in many ways why the timing works out quite well. Beyond that, it's kind of the best of both worlds. And so far as like me being able to contribute, I have full choice on, on all the things that I want to uh, without having to carry that, that responsibility. And the responsibility, the sheer scale of the responsibility is so large given that this identity problem is such a large problem. We have always felt that this identity problem is one of the last major problems that's not been solved and that it impacts 7 billion people in one way or another. You have half the world's population are excluded from accessing basic financial services purely because they're not able to effectively prove their identity. Like Financial institutions want to serve them. It's just either too costly because they have to see them face to face or there are fraud risks because they can't verify their identity. And on the other hand, you've got fraud still accounting for between 2 to 5% of the world GDP, um, which is, that's according to the United Nations. That's almost $2 trillion a year. Um, wow. And all this money laundering that's happening, the, the common denominator across all of them is identity theft and fraud. Hence, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of work to be done. Okay, Hussein, well, don't go away because I just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. In this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. Com. Now, back to the story with Hussein. Um, you know, we've been talking about Onfido and you mentioned a few other projects uh, which you're working on. Uh, tell us what you're up to now beyond Onfido. I'm mostly essentially on a, on a semi-break and enjoying family, friends, uh, as far as can be done remotely and just walking, exercising, all the, the more normal things that people uh, do. 
uh, beyond that. So I'm in large part helping some former Onfido team members who, who are now entrepreneurs and doing their own things as well as generally the whole industry because I was helped a ton. And in some ways, I kind of really enjoy wor working with entrepreneurs. Um, so my own projects, um, the, this is early stages. Nothing's been done yet. But I can talk broadly about the problem we're solving. Uh, on the one hand, there is engagement and a, and a strong desire for people to have their voices heard and for them to be able to engage in content, um, specifically media content, whether that be what they view on YouTube or, or, or the TV. Uh, that's part of it. So the second problem, uh, or in, in some ways that they kind of go hand in hand, is uh, the media industry and how it seems antiquated uh, and broken and not reflective of general people's views and things of that nature. Ouch, so, you're, you're um, hurting I'm, me there, um, Hussein. Working. Excuse me? You're hurting oh, no, me, no, you're, you're, the <laughs> you're the new media. You're the alternative <laughs> okay. media. And that, that's the whole point. Like The alternative, alternative new media is doing extremely well. But uh, I felt for a number of years now that there's, there's a need for a new media network. And um, with some friends, we're at the early stages of, of, of making that happen. This would be like a TV station in the UK or something? Uh, it would be part of it, but we're, we're predominantly brainstorming like what is the problem to be solved and then um, going about solving it. So, I mean, it's, it is new media, so new media on balances, whether it's online and things of that nature. But uh, if we, I mean, not if, but when we do it, we want it to be uh, mainstream and by definition, TV is underrated. This TV is not going anywhere for a long time. So uh, the way as it stands, and I should say this is like very early stage, uh, it'd be hard to see why it wouldn't or it wouldn't have a, a strong TV component. Well, if you need a presenter, you you, you let me know. But uh, but I think you're also Absolutely. on the uh, I read you're on the advisory committee of uh, the Oxford Seed Fund, uh, and you're also on the all party parliamentary group on AI. Uh, what do you do? What does that involve? So we received our first check after nine months of me looking for money back in 2012 uh, from the, the Oxford University Seed Fund. And I studied economics and management, so half of my time was at uh, the business school. And I like the team, and they've helped me, me so much that um, whenever they want, whether it's a case study or like, I, I can't say a mentor because they were my mentors. It's not, it's not right to say a mentor, but an example of, of this being possible, I'm always well up for like sharing the story and, and explaining how it is very doable and offering sort of uh, I, I, your specific question of, of what does that involve. It's basically half a day a year. I go to the uh, Oxford Foundry. I spend time with, with the cohorts and uh, typically half an hour with each. I give some views around whether what they're doing or areas that it could be improved and I connect them with those who I think may be able to help. That's the extent of it. And on the All Parliamentary uh, uh, Advisory Group on AI, essentially to recognize that machine learning in AI is extremely powerful in its applications of stopping fraud, which is what we're doing, and feature space and comply advantage and all these others do the same. But equally, um, you have in healthcare, you know, diagnosing, diagnosing um, lung images and, and things of that nature. But it also has risks. And there's an ethical layer that needs to be that, for instance, you know, surveillance on facial recognition. We, we don't do any of that, obviously. We're only facial matching your face to the photo ID and then it's all deleted. But uh, whether in a supermarket you scan everyone's face and you try to match it to some sort of database and things of that nature. There are reasons why they might be okay, like for security and otherwise. But it, these are issues that need to be thought through. 
and there need to be a greater number of uh, those policymakers who are aware of these so that we're able to get the best of what we can get from this without the risks. Uh, just going back to um, the uh, uh, your uh, work with um, Oxford Seed Fund, are there any, I know you can't probably tell me too much about uh, some of the specific uh, ideas or companies that are you know, going to be emerging from there, but, but are there any particular things that have caught your eye that you can share? There are a few. So often they're kind of going through an accelerator program that is not a basically um, like ready to raise funding as such. But I would say that uh, as soon as they, they are, especially now that I have a bit more time, I'll be able to talk and promote uh, and, and help them get funding. Uh, reading a, a little bit around uh, your background, I understand that you know, you're, there, there wasn't kind of like a, an entrepreneurship gene kind of passed down to you from your folks. But I'm just wondering if perhaps you talked about you know, when your, your parents were kind of uh, here trying to you know, get into credit bureaus and kind of, you know, rent uh, places and, and whatnot. Did, did you perhaps think that maybe one of the reasons you went down this route, kind of, you know, flying solo, helping set up your own company, that, you know, you kind of felt like perhaps an outsider to begin with? I'm just wondering what, you know, maybe inspired you to kind of go down this route, which perhaps isn't uh, a traditional route, let's say, or certainly, you know, hadn't for many years been a traditional route from, for Oxford graduates, you know, uh, maybe at the business school, you'd have been expected to go, you know, into a large corporation or uh, or something like that. So I'm just wondering what it was, if there was something in particular that you can put your finger on that maybe inspired you beyond that particular moment of seeing your parents struggling to be recognized um, that made you end up getting to where you are today. Yeah. So before I started, none of them, as you say, were uh, in anyone in the family, whether in entrepreneurship or business or anything. My dad was essentially a university lecturer. But I can tell you, since I've started on Fido, every, every one of them has tried one thing or another, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is great. And when it comes to um, why, for me, um, part of the problem of the university experience was like you go and you learn about all the world's problems. And then you're told to go into banking or consulting afterwards. It's kind of like an unquestioned thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I've got most of my friends are in one of those two uh, sort of categories of, of jobs, and they do very important work. Uh, but for me, my uh, main experience was at the Oxford Entrepreneur Society. So I was very fortunate to be the president of that society in my final year. And my sort of one of my co-founders, Eamon, he, he was the vice president. And we could just see we had roughly uh, in the sort of the period, about 40 relatively good quality or at least high potential startups go through um, sort of our desk and we help them get mentors or sponsorship or investments and so on. Uh, some of those cards ended up being uni places and go cardless and, and, and others. So we could kind of see that although there's 800 years of history at Oxford, there's only about 80 startups and that's a real shame. There, there are far more at Oxford Brooks and many other universities. So there's this big gap. And so we recognize that, um, and this is before the whole accelerator craze and, you know, all the seed funding. Back, back in 2012, I could count on my hands the number of accelerator programs there were. You know, it's a completely different set of scenarios and circumstances now. But uh, what got us going was we actually worked in the, in the <laughs> city ourselves. So I did one week uh, at Merrill Lynch at the time, kind of like an internship. Uh, and both of my co-founders had done internships or, or short uh, employment periods. And we just felt that having what we had seen at Oxford Entrepreneurs, having what we'd read about the Bay Area and all these amazing startups that are basically changing the world, and having experienced the financial sector, and as important as, as 
many parts of it are. Uh, as an analyst for the first two or three years, all you're doing is just spreadsheets and, and things of that nature, not essentially solving world problems in that in the way that you could be. Um, we felt like we had everything that we needed to, to be able to take advantage of the lower cost of setting up a company, the massive talents that the UK has that is being so under-resourced, uh, the AI and machine learning that's going to come and change almost everything. They need to solve this identity problem. And basically three uh, sort of young and hungry uh, co-founders that were willing to do what it takes to at least give it a go. Never in our wildest dreams would we ever have thought it would be this big and have applications and clients across like so many, so many different geographies. But um, those were plenty of reasons for us to, to get going. The one thing that we consciously decided and we talked about was, um, especially if you have Asian parents, right? It's not too dissimilar, I'm sure, with many different ethnicities. There's this need to get a mortgage and get a salary and be set because getting a job, it doesn't matter if you're Oxbridge or any university nowadays, it's like increasingly tough. And so parents, it seems, it's, it's, it's the same in the US and everywhere. It seems um, they're just going to be on edge and lose sleep until their child not only now graduates or gets into that university, but graduates, but also has a job. <laughs> and then it's passing probation. So we consciously decide like, hey, what's the worst that can happen? Let's give it a go for a year. What is absolute? We're going to be working in a job for like 60 years. So why not try this for at least a year and then take it from there? Uh, and then beyond that, so I kind of uh, worked on it for a year before the other two joined. So we had customers, we had investments, um, and then the other two joined so that it, it was uh, even a little bit more secure uh, for them. I guess your parents uh, must be quite uh, content with the path that you chose now. Uh, you mentioned that you never dreamed that Onfido would become as big as it has. Uh, can you give us a sense of how big it, it is, perhaps in terms of valuation, in terms of revenues, profitability, and if uh, Onfido is going to be the next fintech to go public via a SPAC or otherwise? I would love to. So we, we essentially produce an annual report um, that highlights the successes, industries, wins, awards, uh, and it gives indications uh, of growth. I, I would say, though, that the one, well, one of the advantages of not being public is that you can keep some of it private. And in essence, this is less about us. It's more about sort of advice to entrepreneurs and others that, that are listening in. It's like there are benefits of stealth mode. There are benefits of not talking. So I can tell you in 2015, 16, and 17, we had models that would outperform almost any other model on ideas and faces. They were just not in production yet, but we knew that in theory it could work. We never mentioned it. Like whenever we were asked how you're doing, we just said, ticking along. <laughs> because so you ought to give enough to build confidence in clients because you've got mainstream banks and others looking to sign up. They want to know are they like signing up to like the winner and are they like this company they want. So you have to give enough, but there's no need to shout too much uh, in many ways. And so what we have done is uh, every year producing a report, having that passed by the board to make sure what we're sharing is essentially, as you can imagine, there's all these complexities that, that come into to play. Uh, uh, that's essentially what, what we share. Uh, as I sort of mentioned, we're above our ambitious targets that we set for last year. Or and ahead of, I should say. Can you say if you're profitable or something like that? Um, we publish our accounts, so that's public knowledge that we're not uh, yet, we're investing for growth. Okay. And you mentioned about your excitement about, you know, the difference that running companies and, and, and fintechs as well can, can have. Uh, 
you're obviously in the UK, you're associated with the government and it's all party parliamentary group on AI, not the government, I should say, uh, the, the UK parliament. Um, I'm just wondering what impact you see uh, Brexit having had on, uh, if not on Fido, because I know that, you know, you've got a lot of uh, business in the US and outside of uh, the UK and, and, and Europe. What, what sense do you get in terms of the impact Brexit is having on entrepreneurs, perhaps non-British ones who are at Oxford, uh, who you see via the Oxford Seed Fund? Uh, what's your sense of the impact, if any? I would, on balance, relatively minor. Uh, the, so as an entrepreneur deciding where to locate, you know, the actual, there, there are things that these are matter, but they don't rank in the top five uh, things. So it'd be number six, seven, eight. As a fintech, you're probably considering the regulatory frameworks and passporting and things of that nature. But the negotiations were done in a way to not damage either side. And so they're on balance, like well thought through, it seems. So it's a case of first and foremost, far and away, the most important thing is access to talents. And you get nothing is going to change a number of universities and graduates and experienced people, whether it's in machine learning or other skill areas that that the UK has and will continue to have. Really? Because aren't non-Brits going to you know have to go through visa processes, whereas previously, if they were just if they were EU nationals, they could just come and go as they pleased. You're right. So as as frustrating as as there are these additional hoops to jump through are in the grander scheme of things. If you get an offer from a, a, a fast-growing tech company in the UK, whereas it may have been very easy before, and now there are an additional few weeks of, of paperwork, far from ideal, but that wouldn't sway your decision to go and work for that company or not. Uh, so there is these um, mind-occupying factors. That is the biggest source of frustration. So there's the uncertainty for a, num- uh, a number of years. And more importantly, forgetting about your, sort of the continents uh, and the UK, if you're a Canadian uh, tech enthusiast, and you've got a job offer from a UK company or one in France, where and they're identical in every way, you're now more probably likely to go to the French one, just because you don't, as especially engineers, on balance, you know, given my limited experience, or or, or most people in the tech sector, you just typically don't like separation. And like this talk of division, you kind of like unity and all being together, like freedom of movement. That is very uh, natural and normal to those in the tech world, typically. So it's just a notion that if a country is less open to migrants, it, by definition, will become less appealing to those who are thinking of applying. So it's less about the uh, impact in the early few months and years. But unless we get back to making this really as close as, as frictionless as it was before, I worry that we might lose out on talents coming in the past. So we have an engineering office of about 60 in, in Lisbon, Portugal, and we have our sort of roughly 200 engineers here in London. I can say that the number of applications that we're getting in Lisbon is now um, higher in proportion compared to before. Uh, this whole Brexit discussions were one tiny company, and this is sort of a tiny example, but um, that is a shame. That is a shame. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to the day when a conversation about fintech or anything related to the UK doesn't uh, uh, invoke reference to to Brexit or the B word. Um, So look, just one final uh, question for you, Hussein, and this is something I put to all people who join me on the Fintech podcast, and that is, what's the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? That is a really interesting thing to say. 
Um, Onfido is pretty crazy. <laughs> no, you can't use Onfido. Uh, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, craziest thing. Because it wasn't your first startup either, right? No, had like I, I had like an of- online eBay business at the age of 12. I started trading in shares at the age of 15. I unfortunately had to commit identity fraud to use my older sister's details. I, wouldn't, I wasn't legally able to trade. Uh, but it was, so it may be that sort of that eBay online business at the age of 12, I found a loophole in the regulation that said you can sell foreign music on eBay if that record label does not sell in your country, in that specific country. Uh, and this is back, sort of, it must have been 2000, and maybe four or five. So I would uh, have these CDs printed and I started to sell them. It soon became like global, as in selling to like Dubai, Emirates, and like um, Latin America and others, small scale, a few hundred pounds a week. These are just CDs sold for three, four pounds each, nothing big. Uh, but um, it got to a state where I wasn't able to track where these are being sold to and eBay shut it down because I set, ended up selling in a few places where those record labels did in fact have uh, selling rights there. So it was my first uh, scaling failure <laughs> of uh, not being able to do that. So not only did you commit identity fr- fraud, um, you also <laughs> you also perhaps breached copyright uh, inadvertently of, yeah. uh, of these record labels. Yeah. And uh, it's nothing to be proud of at all. But, but I, I shared the story of a 12-year-old being able to open a PayPal account, eBay account, and sell music CDs globally, just to kind of, uh, as a little bit of a dig as to what a joke, the, uh, how broken the identity process was, uh, and in many ways still is. Um, so I've been on the other end of it as well. Right, well but I, I apologize to <laughs> <laughs> PayPal, eBay, and, and those handful of customers that I should not have sold or undercut. And at the time, of course, this was pre-MP3, so you were, what, just buying the CDs in the UK or something and then just posting no, them off to... Raw CDs, um, storing uh, or copying the music over and then shipping it everywhere. This was the, the, the happy days before uh, sort of peer-to-peer downloads and so on, and Spotify and everything else came and made all this irrelevant. Okay, well, I'm sure all is forgiven and uh, certainly uh, wish you the best of luck, both with your ongoing relationship with uh, Onfido and also your other plans for the future. Um, but for now, I just uh, really want to thank you, uh, Hussein Kasai, co-founder and former CEO of Onfido. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the FNTech podcast. Real pleasure. As ever with interviews, the most interesting bits often come at the end. I love the revelation that Hussein carried out his own, albeit minor, identity fraud to set up his first business, age 12, which itself accidentally fell foul of copyright law. No doubt his ease in pretending to be someone he wasn't, together with his parents' struggles to prove who they were, all contributed to the idea that was to become on Fido. And although Hussein's no longer running that business, you'd be a brave person to bet against one of his new projects turning into something equally big. So thank you, Hussein Kasai, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.